right, we're gonna we're gonna start by by praying again, even though we've just prayed three times. But uh, the the third time is, I think, the one that really counts. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we just want to to come before you this morning and to put put ourselves under your word and and recognize and submit to its its authority over us. Yeah, we're th- we're thankful that you have given us the gift and and what a gracious gift it is of your word that you haven't left us alone to figure out how we're supposed to do this thing called the Christian life or, or what we're supposed to do with what Jesus has done for us, but you reveal yourself to us in your word and you reveal us to us in your word and you reveal our need to us in your word. And so we pray today that as we look again at, at union with Christ, that uh, in your word we would see what we must do uh, in light of what you have done for us in Jesus pray that you would send uh, the same spirit that we're going to be talking about this morning to uh, illumine our minds and to enlarge our understandings and to, to do the work for us that, that only your spirit can do for us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, that you have purchased um, our, our redemption, that you've accomplished it and you have... Uh, provided for its application to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So today, we're, we're continuing on in our series on union with Christ. Uh, it's the sixth week, and this week we're going to be talking about uh, union with Christ and the Holy Spirit. Uh, thus far, what we've seen is that union with Christ is is the doctrine that describes this relationship we have with Jesus. And that it's through union with Christ that we have all of our relationship with God. So any kind of interaction we have with God, we have through union with Christ. That means that every single aspect of our salvation, adoption, justification, sanctification, all of it we have through union with Christ. And every blessing we get from God comes to us through our union with Jesus. Uh, but more than union with Christ being a doctrine or some idea that we need to know and believe, we've talked about how it's a relationship with Jesus that we live in and participate in. And so the past few weeks, we've been talking about what it means to abide in Jesus, how we abide in Jesus by faith, how we abide in Jesus by fighting sin, how we abide in Jesus by pursuing holiness. But today, as I said, we're talking about uh, union with Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the question that we should all want the answer to is, is why? Why union with Christ and the Holy Spirit? Why are we talking about the Holy Spirit in a sermon series on union with Christ? Well, there's, there's two reasons for that. The first reason is the Trinity. And the second reason is uh, because of the nature of the relationship that union with Christ is. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to get a, a quick refresh 
on the Trinity because, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of difficult to understand and I don't think we spend all of our time thinking about it. I don't think we spend as much of our time as we should thinking about it. But if we're going to understand what union with Christ means and how that relates to the other members of the Trinity, we need to kind of remember what the Trinity is. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and then we're going to come back at the end and talk about that second reason about the nature of the relationship that is union with Christ and how the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to participate in union with Christ. And so first, uh, the Trinity. The simplest reason for why we're talking about the Holy Spirit today in a series on union with Christ is because of the Trinity, right? God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means if we're united with Christ... Christ is a member of the Trinity, we're also connected to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so what is the Trinity? The Trinity is is three truths that we as Christians believe about God. The first one is that God exists as three persons. The second one is each of those persons is fully God. And the third is there is one God. So God exists in three persons, each person is fully God, and there is one God. That's, that's the Trinity. That's who we believe is God. God exists in Trinity. And so we're going to see these three truths in Scripture. So the first one, God exists as three persons. That's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We just sang the doxology. So we sang about those three, only we called the Spirit the Holy Ghost because that's uh, what the language was used when the doxology was written. And so the Spirit is the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Ghost. They're they're the same person. Um, But God exists as three persons. So we see in Scripture three distinct persons revealed to us as God. So I'm going to go to three passages to see this. The first one is 1 John 2.1. These are going to be up on the slides. If you want to flip around in your Bible, you can, but we're going to move through these pretty quickly. So 1 John 2.1. John says, My little children... I am writing these truths to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So John, in 1 John 2, 1, is writing his letter to the church, and he's saying, I'm writing this letter so that you guys won't sin. But if you do sin, know this truth. And the truth is, we have an advocate with the Father. That's one person in the verse. Who is Jesus Christ the Lord? That's the second person in the verse. So in 1 John 2, 1, we see the Father and Jesus talked about as if they're distinct from one another. They're not exactly the same. Uh, we see the same thing in John 14, 26. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples, and he says, But the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 14, 26, we have all three distinct members of the Trinity present. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he says that the Helper, who's the Holy Spirit, the Father is going to send in his name. So the Father, one person, is going to send the Holy Spirit, two person, in the name of Jesus, three persons. So there are three persons that are present in this verse. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, we see all three again. There's one body one spirit, that's number one, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, that's number two, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, that's number three. God exists as three persons in Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see this across the pages of Scripture. The second truth 
is that each of these persons, and by persons I don't mean human beings, I mean like separate and distinct beings. Uh, Each person is fully God. So the Father is fully God, Jesus is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God. Um, 1 Corinthians 8.6, for there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The Father is fully God. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 8.6. We could also go to a thousand other passages to see that. Uh, Throughout the history of the church, there have been heresies that have denied Jesus' deity, that he's fully God. There have been heresies that have denied that the Holy Spirit is fully God. I don't know of a single heresy that has ever denied that the Father is fully God. I'm sure that there's one out there somewhere, but it's not very popular because it's all over the Bible. The second truth is that the Son is fully God. We see this in John 20, 26 through 29. This is after the resurrection, and this is what John tells us. He says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus appears because Thomas hadn't seen him raised from the dead yet. Thomas experiences Jesus' resurrection and he responds by saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And what's important for us to see here is that Jesus does not correct him. Right? Jesus doesn't say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't call me God. The Father's God. I'm not. Jesus receives it because it's true. He is God. And John retells it because it's true and he is God. And so in this verse, Jesus is uh, ascribed full divinity. He's, He's talked to as if he is God and he accepts it. Jesus is fully God. There's also other passages we could go to, but this sermon isn't about the Trinity. Uh, The next passage where we see that the Holy Spirit is God is Acts 5, 3 through 4. It's Peter speaking, and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So Ananias and Sapphira, they sold some land. They brought the money to the apostles, and they said, hey, here's all the money, even though they had kept some back for themselves, and Peter now is confronting them about that. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So Peter here is saying, you could have done whatever you wanted with the money, but instead you decided to bring it to us and lie. And he said, you'd lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter, in his response to Ananias, points out that the Holy Spirit is fully God. So up to this point, these two truths, we see that in Scripture, God is revealed as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each of those three persons are fully God. If we could stop here, the Trinity would be very easy for us to understand and wrap our minds around. Maybe, maybe it's a little confusing that God is revealed as three persons, and each of those three persons are fully God, but When we add in number three, things get tricky. Number three is, there is one God. Each 
uh, God is revealed as three persons. Each of those persons is fully God, and there's one God. We see this in places like Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Same thing in Isaiah 50, or 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no God. We also saw that in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, where it said there's one God. So this part adds, adds a wrinkle in our brains. God exists as three persons. Each of those persons is fully God, and there is one God. This is the Trinity as it's revealed in Scripture. And there's a lot of other places we could go to to see the same thing. Uh, it's a, a paradox. It's, it's a mystery. It's difficult for us to understand, and we're never going to comprehend it. But what is really important for us to get is that it is not a contradiction. Right? We're, we're not saying, I think we have a couple slides of what we're not saying. Right? We're not saying this. We're not saying God exists as three persons, each person is fully God, and God is one person. Right? Those statements are contradictory. They, they don't work together. We're not saying God exists as three gods, each of those gods is fully God, and there is one God. That is a contradiction. We're saying that God exists as three persons, each of those persons is fully God, and that there is one God. They're not a contradiction, but it is difficult to understand. It is beyond our comprehension. We're not going to be able to work this out by thinking about it enough and studying enough and knowing enough about it. It's always going to elude our grasp. And that's okay. Because we aren't part of the Trinity. And so we don't get to know everything about it in full comprehension because we're not God. And I've got some, some diagrams. The last time we talked about the Trinity, we used these, and some of you said they were helpful. Uh, and so if you don't think they're helpful, I'll give you the list of names of people that said they were last time. <laughs> this, the first, first few ones we're going to look at are, are not the Trinity. So this would be like as if God is a pie chart, right? 33.3% of God is the Father, 33.3% is the Spirit, and 33.3% is the Son, that's, that's not how God works. God is not one being that's just kind of chopped up into three different parts. The next one, this would be like as if, you know, we've got God as a being, and then the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are just kind of like tumors that grow on the outside of them, right? That's not, that's not how the Trinity works. Uh, the next one is uh, the Trinity is not three different ways of looking at God. It's not as if like we look from one angle and we see the Holy Spirit and we look from the other side and then we see the Son and we look from the other side, we see the Father. That's, that's not what the Trinity is. God is who he is all the time. He's always the Father, always the Son, and always the Holy Spirit. Uh, the next one is, uh, this, this is a, a heresy called modalism. Some people believe that like God in the Old Testament was the Father. And then when the New Testament came, he kind of morphed into the Son and then after Jesus died on the cross and rose into heaven, then he kind of morphed into the Holy Spirit. That's not what we see in Scripture. We see all three acting at the same exact time. So, for example, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus is getting baptized. And a voice from heaven speaks, and that's the Father. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. 
We see all three working at the same time. That's why this doesn't work. Because the Father would have to speak and then really quickly change into the Son and then really quickly change into the Spirit, and that's, that's nonsense. Um, these last two pictures together are what the Trinity is like. And so the triangle over here kind of represents it logically. So uh, all three, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they, they, they is God. Uh, but they are not each other. And so the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. But they all are God. Um, that's kind of the logical relationship. But this circle up here kind of represents God's being. And that's why the lines are dotted. It's not a pie chart. It's saying the Holy Spirit is, is fully God. But yet when we see in Scripture, we see him acting as a distinct person within the Trinity. The Son is, is fully God. And yet in Scripture, especially in the Gospels, we see him acting as a distinct person who is a member of the Trinity. And same thing with the Father. That's what the Trinity is. And so the reason why we're talking about the Trinity in a sermon on union with Christ is because of those dotted lines. It's because if we're united with the Son, we're also united with the Father and the Holy Spirit because those lines are dotted. There's not walls separating the Son from the Father and from the Holy Spirit. So if we're united with Jesus, we're also united with the Father. We're also united with the Holy Spirit. And so when we think of our union with Christ, we shouldn't just limit it to Jesus. We should recognize that being united with him means we have access to the Father. And we have access to the Holy Spirit that we would not have if we weren't united with uh, Jesus. So... In light of that, the question you should be asking now is, well, then why is the sermon union with Christ and the Holy Spirit? Why not union with Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit? Uh, it's not because, you know, we, we don't like the Father. It's not because he's not important, because he is. Uh, but it's because of reason number two. And that is the nature of the relationship that is union with Christ. It's the fact that we cannot be united with Christ and experience union with Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think this is the most important reason. And so, for the past several weeks, we've been talking about how union with Christ is a relationship. And uh, I've tried to stress that aspect of it to, to, to help us understand that union with Christ isn't some super complicated, abstract theological deal. But it's, it's something that, that we're already familiar with because we're already familiar with relationships. We, we do relationships all the time. But even though union with Christ is a relationship, it's a different kind of relationship. Right? We, we have relationships with one another and we exist in relationships with one another because we can spend time with each other. We can have dinner together. We can talk face to face. We can, we can do things together. Whereas with Jesus, it's different because he's not physically present in a way that's tangible to us. It's a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual, mystical relationship. And because it's that kind of relationship, the only way we can do that kind of relationship is through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is the person of the Godhead that takes these spiritual realities of the gospel and applies them to us. 
right? And so if you think about what Jesus did on the cross, which we, we celebrate every week in the Lord's Supper, and we talk about every week as we see it woven throughout the pages of Scripture, right? On the cross, Jesus accomplished our redemption for us, right? Right? He, he, died, he lived a perfect life. He died a death in our place. He rose again, announcing his victory over sin, death, and Satan. And through that work, he accomplished our, our justification, our, our freedom from sin, our adoption as sons and daughters of God, our sanctification, uh, the whole thing Jesus accomplished for us. But the question is, how does it go from being accomplished for us by Jesus to applied to us as individuals, right? How does that go from being kind of a a thing Jesus has done to Jesus has done that for me? Well, first of all, Jesus purchased on the cross both the accomplishing and the application. He did both of those things, but we still need to experience it personally. Since that's a little confusing, I want to give you an illustration. Let's say some, some world-famous chef. We'll pick Gordon Ramsay because it's the guy that popped in my head. He's going to come to your house and he's going to make your favorite meal for you. So think for a little bit about what your favorite meal would be. For me, it would probably be a, a thick bone-in ribeye, maybe with some mashed potatoes, maybe like garlic whipped potatoes, and, you know, a vegetable. Like, who cares what vegetable? Just not peas or beets. One of, the, one of the good vegetables. And so he shows up to your house, and he makes this meal for you, and he sets it in front of you. What do you do? You've got the objective reality that a world-famous chef has made exactly what you wanted for you. It's sitting in front of you. How do you move that from being an objective reality to being a subjective experience for you? You eat it, right? You don't say, can you please give me the history of this ribeye? You know, is this grass-fed? Was it fed oats? Was it fed, you know, weird scraps of things that cows aren't supposed to eat? Was it free grazing? Tell me about this cow. I want to know the history of all of this that's set in for me. Let's, let's spend time meditating on the objective realities of this meal and how you've prepared it. Like, maybe you're going to ask him some questions because, hey, it's a chef who's just made what you really like to eat. But you're going to sit down and you're going to dig in and you're going to experience the meal that's been prepared for you. And that's how you're going to enjoy it. That is what the Holy Spirit does for us with salvation. He takes all these objective theological truths. He takes all the things that Jesus has done on our behalf on the cross and he applies them to us personally. That's exactly what he does with union with Christ. He allows us to participate in and live in and benefit from and enjoy the realities of union with Christ. He does what our taste buds and our sense of smell do with that food for us with union with Christ. And we cannot experience them apart from the Spirit's work in us. That's what the Spirit does. Where do we see this in Scripture? Right? It's one thing for me to say that, but let's, let's back it up. Let's see this in a few passages. The first one we're going to go to is... Ephesians 
Paul says, in him, that's in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So in this passage, Paul is telling the Ephesians that when they believed the gospel, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, all the way back at the beginning of the verse, he says how they were sealed. They were sealed in him. That's in Jesus. We saw this in the very first week we talked about union with Christ. Paul is saying here that we receive the Holy Spirit through our union with Christ. So right off the beginning, we see that union with Christ is connected to the Holy Spirit because it's through our union with Christ that we receive the benefits of the Holy Spirit. The next passage is Ephesians 2.18. We're going to move forward a little bit. That's, that's kind of just setting up that the Spirit is connected with union with Christ. Ephesians 2.18. For through him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. The, the both here is Jews and Gentiles. Paul is talking about how the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in Jesus. Now both Jews and Gentiles have access to the Father. And he says they have access to the Father through him. That's through Jesus. But it's in one spirit. So he's saying that it's through our union with Christ, we have access to the Father. We have access to the Father in the spirit. This is all three elements of the Trinity working together. We have access to the Father through our union with Jesus. That's, that's step one. But we experience, we partake of, we participate in that access to the Father through or in the Spirit. The Spirit accomplishes or applies the access to the Father that we have through Jesus. That's, that's really important for us to understand those steps. Our union with Christ gives us access to the Father. But it's by being in the Spirit that we participate in that access to the Father. We see the same thing in the next passage. Ephesians 2.22 In Him, that's in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are being built into a dwelling place for God or that's, that's happening in Jesus by the Spirit. So this spiritual reality that we're being built together into a dwelling place for God, it happens through our union with Christ, but the way we experience that, the way that happens, the way that gets carried out, the way that's applied to us is by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 3.24 Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. We talked about this last week. Second part. And by this, we know that he abides in us. By the spirit whom he has given us. So how do we know that Jesus abides in us? By the spirit whom he has given us. The spirit makes that reality known to us. The spirit does what the spirit does and takes that reality of our salvation and applies it to us so that we know it and experience it. See the same thing in John or 1 John 4:13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because of the spirit he has given us. Right? We can know that we abide in him, we can know that he abides in us because of the spirit. The spirit does that work for us. And last but not least is Romans 8, 9 through 11. This is a longer chunk. Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, 
If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So in this passage at the very beginning, Paul is referring back to Romans 8.8. In Romans 8.8, he said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the situation of people who are in the flesh. If you're not in Jesus, you're in the flesh. And if you're in the flesh, you can't please God. No matter what you do, you can't please him. The only way to please God is by being in Jesus. But Paul says in Romans 8.9 that, that you, that's the people who have trusted in Christ, you're not in the flesh. Instead, you're in the Spirit, if the Spirit dwells in you. And he's going to say, anybody who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So there's this relationship, again, existing between union with Christ and the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you're in Christ. There's a connection being made by both Paul and then the passage we looked at in Ephesians and one of the passages we looked at in 1 John. But then he says, if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. What does that mean? He's going to unpack it in verse 11. He says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the him here is the Father. If the spirit of him who dwell, or man, This verse is hard to say. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that's the Father, will also give life to your mortal bodies. How is he going to give life to our mortal bodies? Through his spirit who dwells in you. Right? Back in Romans 6, we saw that there was a connection being made between us being united with Jesus in his death that freed us from sin and us being united with Jesus in his resurrection life, which means we get to live a new kind of life where we're empowered to walk in obedience and we're empowered to live the kind of life that God calls us to. That happens by us being made alive, by God giving life to our mortal bodies. How does God give life to our mortal bodies? By the Spirit. The Spirit takes what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf on the cross. The Spirit takes the realities of union with Christ and makes them real to us in our lives. He applies them to us and makes them ours. And so, if as we've been going through this series and we've been talking about union with Christ, we've been talking about how if you're in him and he's in you, you have a relationship with Jesus and we have promises like he's always going to be with us and he's never going to leave us, but you've been thinking it just doesn't feel like Jesus is with me. Right? There are times where, where I don't feel united with him. There are times where I don't feel like I'm freed from sin. There are times where I don't feel like I'm empowered to walk in obedience, which if we're honest, we all feel like all of those things sometimes. The reason why we all feel like some of those things sometimes is because we need the Spirit to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Right? We can't cause ourselves to, just by thinking about all these objective realities, start living them out. In the same way that just by thinking about the objective truths of that meal, we can't experience it for ourselves. We need to eat it to really know what it's about. 
We need the Spirit to take these things and put them into us and put them into our lives. Because that's what the Spirit does. And that's what we can't do for ourselves. So the application today is simple. You can't do it. (laughs) We can't do these things. So what do we do? We ask the Spirit to do them for us. We pray and we ask Him in in a reverent way to do His job. Because that's what he does. That's who the Spirit is. He lives. He exists to take the realities of the Father and the Son and to put them in his people so that God is glorified through his people. Not so that people look at us and say, oh, look at how those people live out all the subjective realities of the gospel. (laughs) But so that people see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we we get to dedicate some babies, as we get to go uh, celebrate baptism, be asking the Spirit to do the work in you that only the Spirit can do. We cannot celebrate the Lord's Supper rightly without the Spirit. We cannot sing worship songs to the Father rightly without the Spirit. We cannot be happy and encouraged by baptism without the Spirit. We cannot ask God to care for and raise up children who love the Lord in this church without the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to do for us what only the Holy Spirit can do for us. And so as you're preparing your heart today, ask him to do it. And then the rest of the day, as you're trying to live out the gospel, ask him to do it. And the rest of the week, as you're trying to live out the gospel, ask him to do it because we can't do it ourselves. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you accomplished all of our salvation through your life, your death, and your resurrection. And that if we trust in you, those things are true of us. And we thank you that you also, on the cross, purchased the application of our salvation to us. And that you sent your spirit to take those truths and to make them true for us and in us. We thank you that we do live in union with you. That you are in us and with us. And we thank you that you have given your spirit to make those truths real to us. Even when we don't feel them. So spirit, we ask that you would do for us and do in us what we cannot accomplish on our own. And that you would, would make us, that you would cause us to be faithful, to consistently and regularly ask you to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. We pray now that as we move to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Spirit, that you would work in us, that you would convict sin, that you would encourage holiness, And that you would increase our affections 
for what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do for us in our salvation. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.